Tonight we continue our series on the subject of infant salvation, and this will be the ninth in the series thus far, and the title of the message this evening is that of the children of God theory. This will be another theory which is present, which attempts to explain the salvation of a baby or a child when it dies. What happens to a child when it dies. Now, thus far in our study on infant salvation, we've examined three false and inadequate theories of infant salvation. These views are known as the sinless theory, the incapable theory, and the love of God or the character of God theory. In the approach to infant salvation as held by the sinless theory, It is believed by the advocates of this view that a child is born innocent without sin and thereby does not become a sinner until it personally chooses to commit its first act of sin, whereupon then it is constituted a sinner. We found that this cannot be squared with the biblical teaching on original sin and that infants are born with a sinful nature and begin the manifestation of that nature as soon as they come forth from the womb. David said, In my mother's womb I was conceived in sin. So the sinless theory is not a biblical, adequate presentation of a view of infant salvation. The second view, which we've already examined, is that of the incapable theory. And this view reasons that before a person's destiny can be settled, they must of all, first of all, be allowed to go through a probationary period. And since the infant was deprived or was incapable of going through their period of probation, then they cannot be condemned uh, because of that. It, the incapable view holds that like the sinless view, that the infant does not have a sinful nature, and at an age of accountability, then the first sin the child or the human being commits, then their probation starts at that time. And depending from that time on, how many good deeds they do as opposed to bad deeds will then determine their eternal destiny. Now, we found that this also cannot be squared with the biblical revelation contained in the Holy Scriptures, that man is not on a probationary period now since the fall of Adam. It is not uncertain whether man is going to be a sinner or not. That has already been settled, and man is born a sinner, and it merely is but a manifestation of a period of time in which his sinful nature will demonstrate itself. So man is not born in a state of probation to determine whether or not he's going to be a sinner. All have already sinned and have come short of the glory of God because they possess a sinful nature. Then the third view, which we've already completed in our examination, is the love of God theory or the character of God. And this theory, we found, understands that God is in essence love and nothing more. 
And since he is a God of all love, he could not be capable of inflicting punishment upon any creature, whether it be an infant or an adult. So on that basis, then, all infants, as well as all adults, shall ultimately be saved and participate of a glorious state in eternity. This view out and out denies the eternal punishment of the wicked. Now, these theories which we have viewed are false in that they ignore or exceed the bounds of scriptural revelation. They do not stay within the Bible for their understanding. They are also inadequate and come short in the explanation of, of explaining what is the actual destiny of an infant which dies in infancy. In tonight's message, we will begin to examine the fourth view, which is known as the children of God theory. Because this view is more involved, it will be necessary to enlarge upon it in a little longer period of time. So tonight we will concentrate upon trying to examine what this view actually is, and then in next week's message try to see if it can be squared in accordance with the scriptures. The children of God theory. What does this theory advocate, and what is its major premise? Now follow with me carefully, because if we miss the major premise, then we'll miss the really the foundational rock upon which this theory presents its conclusions. This view bases its case on two interconnecting doctrines. They are what is known as the universal fatherhood of God and the universal childhood of man. That is, this view believes that God is the universal father by natural birth of all mankind, and that all human beings which are given a physical existence are by natural birth the children of God. Now, in examining this from this basic foundational premise, the assumption is then drawn all the implications and conclusions necessary to formulate a view of infant salvation. If you believe that God is the universal Father of all men, and that all men are God's children, then from that basic understanding you will draw your conclusion relating to your view of infant salvation. This view generally disregards the biblical distinction between God's natural fatherhood of all men and his gracious fatherhood of believers, and then ascribes the benefits and the privileges bestowed upon the believer to all men, irregardless of their attitude, their conduct, or their moral character. If you will study your Bible, even just as a casual glance, you will see the Scriptures making a distinction between the gracious fatherhood of God toward men in Christ and the natural fatherhood of God toward men by nature. And it is only the believer that is now has been adopted into the family of God and is accorded the privileges of the sons of God. It is not all men by natural birth that are the children of God, but that is what this view advocates. 
It takes all the benefits which God promises to the believer in Christ and affords them or imputes them to all men, regardless of their character, their conduct, or their attitude toward God. So then, such scriptures as, whom the Father loves, he chasteneth, and scourges every son whom he receiveth. And then also in Corinthians, that we might be chastened by God in order that we might not be condemned with the world. God's chastening corrections toward his children are designed to correct and remedy their situation. And they are always efficacious, according to those passages which we just read. That is, if God has a son and he loves that son, he will scourge that son until that son renders obedience. But if God then be the natural father of all men, and all men are his children by physical birth, then all men shall ultimately be so chastised so as to partake of salvation, so that no man will be lost, according to this theory, if God is the father of all men. Man, as man, is said to be the natural-born child of God. And God's redemptive actions in Christ are but an expression of the Father's affections to attempt to reconcile his wayward sons. Someone might ask a question, well, if God is the natural Father of all men, then what purpose does the gospel have? What's the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world and dying upon a cross if all men are already the sons of God? And God is dealing with them all in chastening, whereas they shall be corrected and become obedient sons. And this view's reply is that the work of Christ is but to express the Father's love toward his wayward children so that they will in turn see that he has their best interest at heart and will return unto the safety of the Father's house. The designs of the gospel are not designed, according to this view, to satisfy the holy justice of God, to render God appeased with sin uh, through the blood of Christ, but they are merely an expression of a father's love for his wayward child. And once the child comes to understand that, then the theory holds the child and the sinner will come back to the father, and all shall be well throughout eternity. Now this principle, then, is then made the regulative factor which rules all other considerations in Christian theology. Since God's the Father of all men, and all men are by nature his children, then everything else which is to be found in the Bible and in the Christian faith is to be regulated by this principle. If anything appears which appears to undermine or to contradict this, then it must be ignored as being untrustworthy or simply cast out, or else in some way harmonized with this one divine principle which is held that God is the father of all men and all men are his sons by natural birth and nothing is to be found that shall annul that or shall weaken that principle. So then if you hold to that principle, then if you come to a passage in the scripture which appears to Christ with that, you merely then choose to ignore that passage or else you just leave it aside. 
Or you take your scissors and you cut that out and say that's unworthy of God being a father. God, if he's the true father, he, that wouldn't be worthy of him. So you just choose to ignore that passage of Scripture. Now, there are many conclusions which can be drawn from this view. I want to give you four main ones which the advocates of this view draw upon the premise of the fatherhood of God and the childhood of all men. The first conclusion is this, that all men, irrespective of personal character and conduct, are God's children. That is to be affirmed according to this advocate. Secondly, the second conclusion, that as a father... God is very patient and kind and makes great allowances for the sins and the vices of all men as his children. Have you ever heard that stated to you by a friend or an acquaintance? My God is too loving and too kind to condemn anyone. God is very patient with his children That as he is a perfect father, then he is very kind and patient toward the sins and the vices which his children may perform. Therefore, God then could in no way become displeased so as to actually punish one of his own children. The third conclusion is that God, as a merciful father will never eternally punish any sinner for what he has done in this life. For it would be cruel and unfatherly of him to do so. And then the fourth major conclusion of this view is that the doctrine of eternal punishment is therefore an insult to divine sympathy and love and is a reflection upon the fatherhood of God Almighty. So do you see, then, how the advocates of this view, what they're trying to escape? They do not want to have to deal with the doctrine of eternal punishment, or which in the Bible is called hell. So they must come up with a view of God wherein that he is a father of all men, and since all men are his children, then it would be unfatherly for God to assign any of his children to a place of eternal punishment. Now, I'd like to read to you some statements from the advocates of this view of the character, or the rather the children of God theory. Reading first from a professor in a Methodist seminary, and I'm not picking out any particular denomination because today this belief is found in all of the major denominations. So, in this particular professor states this, It is his universal fatherhood that we here and now recognize as the highest and truest conception of deity ever revealed to man. The fatherhood of God is a doctrine which naturally carries along with it the sonship of man. If God is the father of all men, then it follows that all men are his children, his sons by nature and birth, by virtue of being created in his own image. Then another professor in a Baptist seminary states this, 
The one thing essential to us in this discussion, however, stands out very clearly in the New Testament. That one essential thing is this. God loves men as a perfect father loves his children. Now, you reflect upon that. This is the one essential teaching which these advocates say must be embraced. That God loves men as a perfect father loves his children. Now, get the relationship. And then you think about your own children as a parent, if you have been blessed as being a parent. How many of you would cast off one of your children? Hmm? How many of you would assign one of your sons or daughters to an eternity in hell? Then before you get all uptight about the advocates of this view being so far out of Scripture, you better be ready to answer them when they say then, if you wouldn't do that to one of your children, then what kind of a God do you have that would do it to one of his? There is some logic in this view, and we must meet it head on. If God is a father of all men, and he is a perfect father, then the logic is he cannot cast off any of his sons. Now then, I'd like to go a step further and show how this view departs and has changed from the view which has been held by the historical Christian faith and that which was originated in the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. I just want to give a couple of quotations more from the advocates of this view in their confession that this was not the view which was held by the New Testament era, by the apostles. But this is something which has been developed by 20th century man. And this is what they state. Here again is a Presbyterian writer. He says, The God of the 20th century must be larger than the God of the first century. Now, you see right away what he's getting into. That is, we've got to have a bigger, broader concept of God today than they had of God in the first century, acknowledging that the apostles then were the ones who gave us the conception of God in the first century. He has greater responsibilities and a broader field. His duties are immeasurably more complicated and the details of his government more elaborate and confusing. Once he was the God of heaven and earth and hell, and his relation to these was as simple as their relation to each other. The question of the divine sovereignty of God is not as important now as the question of the divine paternity, or that word means fatherhood. We are more interested in heaven than in hell, and more concerned about a redeemed and evenly balanced earth than either. We are looking for large things in God, for we have found humanity to be large, and the predication of a Father God makes all men brothers. We have broken with the ancient creeds that localized God. Now, what were some of those ancient confessions? Here is another Presbyterian minister 
And I want you to notice how he likens this new view of the fatherhood of God, of what it replaces in the older views of the forefathers of the faith. The general principle, the principle which interprets and adjusts all the facts of theology, is the fatherhood of God. In this place, fatherhood takes the place of sovereignty in the Calvinistic system, the place of justification by faith in the Lutheran system, and the place of the divine eminence in the so-called new theology. That is, if we now believe in the 20th century of the fatherhood of God, then this belief replaces the view of the sovereignty of God as held by the Calvinists and the view of justification by faith and faith alone as held by the Lutherans. So that we no longer need to believe in the divine sovereignty of God, we no longer need to believe in justification by faith. If we believe in the universal fatherhood of all, then all men by nature are already his sons, and it's just a matter of time until they find it out, and everyone shall end up in heaven and spend a glorious eternity with their father. So we no longer need the gospel. Why? Because we have a big God now in the 20th century, which has replaced the narrow God of the first century. Now, the changing effects which this view has upon the Christian message and how it's preached are manifestly important. And if you will study how the gospel is presented and how it is being presented today, over the airways and in the churches of our land, you will see the influence of this view of the fatherhood of God even infiltrating conservative pulpits. To where that a conservative minister caught off guard will use terms in which he ultimately undermines the necessity of faith in Christ in the gospel. This view projects a view of God who has such a paternal and sympathetic interest in the entire human race that his happiness and their happiness, that is, man's happiness, is indissolubly bound up together so that whatever may happen to any individual member of the human race must unavoidably affect the very peace of God. Now, have you ever heard that stated? Have you ever heard that God's main purpose for existence is for your happiness? If you have heard that, that statement has originated out of this belief of the fatherhood of God. That is, that whatever happens to any of God's sons, since all men are God's sons, it affects the very peace of mind in God himself. So that nothing can happen to a human being and involve his own happiness without affecting the happiness of God. So if anything happens to you which makes you unhappy, whether you're a Christian or not, that also makes God unhappy and sad. And thereby we have an image then of a very frustrated, lonely, discontented, broken-hearted type of a God. For all that is going on down here on earth is so affecting him, since all men are his children, that his very peace of mind is continually being disrupted. 
because he is supposedly the father of all men. The content of the Christian message, then, as it is preached, is changed from the chief end of God's existence being his own glory to the happiness of men. I ask you, how long has it been since you have heard a message on radio or TV, or for that matter, in some other congregation, in which the chief end of God for his existence is to be his own glory? And, beloved, the scripture is clear on this. God lives for his own glory. But today, that has been replaced with such statements as, God lives for your happiness. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You ever heard that? Have you ever read that? That view did not originate out of the old-time creeds of Christianity. That view originated in the 20th century invention of the fatherhood of God and the childhood of man. Now, for example, I want to give you some of the contrasts, then, which come from understanding this view of God. The chief end of God has been changed from his own glory to the happiness of man. His moral government over creatures has been converted unto moral discipline of children. All sin has now been revised to be not disobedience against a sovereign king, but merely breaking the rules of the father's house, breaking the father's rules. The atonement of Jesus Christ, instead of being a satisfaction rendered unto the justice of God as a sovereign magistrate and ruler, has now been changed to be but an expression of the Father's love for wayward children. And the gospel is now but an appeal to God's wayward children to come back home. Come home, come home. That's in essence what the gospel is presented as today. So that conversion, rather than being an about face wherein a criminal is brought right in relationship to the holy king of heaven and earth, then conversion is merely looked upon as the return of a prodigal son to the father's house. God's father love must pursue all of his wayward children, even if it means beyond the confines of the grave, until all of his children are eventually brought into the safety of heaven. No right-minded father could be happy, according to this view, if he should permit one of his children to perish when he had the ability to prevent it. So that the theory then is made to define God or redefine God's relationship to the world, the origin of man. It redefines the nature of sin, the quality of punishment, the nature and necessity of the atonement, and the nature of conversion and Christian life all have to be redefined from that which is given in the Scriptures. Drawing up some brief conclusions here in regard to the effects which this view has upon the gospel, then here is the distinction. That is, between the old gospel 
and the gospel which is presented by the fatherhood of God. And here they are. This is drawn up by the advocates of this view and not by me. First of all, God is not the sovereign ruler of the world, but he's the loving father of the world. And therefore, that's how the gospel begins. God loves you as a father and has wonderful plans for your life. The old gospel was God is a sovereign king who has moral laws, and all who break his laws come under his displeasure. That's where the gospel began, under the old gospel, that of the first century, but not so with the 20th century gospel of the fatherhood of God. Secondly, this view says, man is not the creature and the servant of God, but he is God's offspring and God's child. That is, I'm to tell you, according to this gospel, that you don't have to serve God as a king. You're one of his children. So therefore, you serve him as a father. Thirdly, God's administration over this world is not a moral government of laws, but merely a parental discipline. If a child breaks one of the laws of the father's house, the rules of the father's house, then it's the design of the father to merely paddle the child and set him back on his way. And that is how God supposedly rules this world, not as a moral king demanding right and wrong out of his subjects, but as a father who deals with his wayward children in discipline. Next, sin is not to be viewed as the violation of a law of the kingdom, but merely as a transgression of the rule of the father's house. Then next, no suffering under God's administration can be punitive, that is, with the design of punishing But all experiences in human existence are remedial and beneficial. Anything adverse happens to you, God's merely chastening you for your own benefit. Now, you see, beloved, I can talk to you like this as believers, and nearly every one of these things I'm saying is true. But when I break down the distinction and I talk to all of my hearers, whether you're a believer or unbeliever, I'm promising you the same things that God has reserved for his children who are his children by adoption into the family of God by grace, so that all men do not have right to the privileges of God as a father unless they come to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. If all men are by children by nature, then there is no need for me to make any distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian. All men are by nature his children. Then next, the atonement was made necessary not by the strict demands of justice, but by the yearning of a father's love. That is, to express how much he loves his children, then he sent his son to die for them, and that's why the the atonement was rendered. Next, the effect... By God, but it was to propitiate or satisfy the sinner that God was for him. Now, did you catch that? I'm going to run it by you again, all right? The design of the atonement or the death of Christ, according to this view, was not to satisfy the justice of God, 
but it was to so satisfy the sinner and assure the sinner that God loved him and was for him. Now, there's where this advocate comes from, even by so-called conservative evangelists, which are known throughout the world, who start their messages with, God loves you as a father and has wonderful things planned for you. Then, next, conversion is not to be viewed as the return of an outlawed criminal, but is merely to be viewed as the return of a prodigal son coming back home to the Father. What does this view have upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit? And now, here is where we really get into the line that distinguishes much of modern-day preaching. The Bible says that the Spirit's ministry is to produce an almighty, powerful regeneration of a depraved human nature. That is, man is dead in trespasses and sin and stands in need of an almighty resurrection from the grave. But this new view, the fatherhood of God, says, now listen, that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is but to give the sweet appeals of the gospel to appeal to the family instincts of a straying child. That is, I do not call for the ministry of the Spirit to come and regenerate my hearer. I merely try to present the gospel to you in such a way that you, as a straying child, will see that you've left the love of the Father's house and that by my pleadings I'll woo you back into the Father's house. Now, that's what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is held to be. So that the advocates of this view then will major on the ministry of the Holy Spirit through pleadings, through tender caresses. Come home, come home. The Father is waiting. O sinner, come home. Now, that view did not come out of the apostolic preaching of the gospel, wherein Peter, when he preached on the day of Pentecost, told his hearers that they stood before a righteous and holy God and that they were in his hands to do with as he saw best. Instead, this view presents the gospel as merely, through the ministry of the Spirit, the sweet appeals of the Spirit wooing the straying child back into the loving arms of the Father. The next distinction that the advocates of this view make between the old view of preaching is that God is not to be viewed as being strict in marking iniquity, but he is a kind and patient Father overlooking human shortcomings and besetting sins. Now, my Bible says that God marks iniquity. He observes what is going on and that it angers him. But this new view says, no, God is kind and patient, and he overlooks whatever men may do, because after all, it's just human weakness. It's human nature. Then finally... This view says that God cannot inflict eternal punishment upon the creatures of his own hand because it would result in return of his own misery. 
if God ever punished one of his children, then it would make God unhappy and miserable in return. Now, this then draws a clear line distinction between what the Christian faith of the first century was and as expressed through the creeds throughout the years of the Christian church and what has been developed in the 20th century view of the fatherhood of God. Now, in moving on, then, we want to then see how that this view is applied to the salvation of infants. If the content of the Christian message is then changed from the God's own glory to the happiness of mankind, then God then lives for making men happy. But how does that view apply to the salvation of an infant? Well, it certainly is applied in this way. Since God is the father of all men, and all men, including infants, are his children, then God could not in any way cast out any of his children, else he himself would become unhappy and miserable in so doing. It is therefore a moral impossibility, according to this view, for any infant dying in infancy to be other than saved, because of the fatherhood of God Almighty. God will always have a love for all of his children. He is absolutely able to save all of his children, and therefore there is no way in which any of his children can be lost. And since infants are his own children by birth, then all infants then, if they should die in infancy, are then saved. Now, beloved, the weight of this logic is sound, and it is impressive if the major premise be true. If it be granted that God is the Father of all men, and all men are by natural birth his children, then the weight of this philosophical argument is very true and sound. For example, I may be a human father with sons, and I may also be a judge in a law court. And if one of my sons commits a crime that's worthy of death, such as murder, and I'm called upon to serve as his judge, in order to uphold the righteous demands of society, then I might assign my own son to execution. And in doing so, I would be righteous according to the law of God Almighty and society. For whosoever sheds man's blood of an innocent nature shall his own have his own blood shed in return. But now listen carefully. I'm not only a judge, but I'm that boy's father. And while I may righteously and judicially assign my son to his death, Until the day I die, I myself will grieve in my heart for his loss. Would you not? Hmm? Then, my hearers, here's the powerful weight of this argument. If God Almighty is the universal Father of all men, and all men by natural birth are his children, 
he may, as a righteous judge, assign some of those children to their just condemnation in hell, but because he is a father, he must, because he is a father, grieve throughout all eternity because of the loss of his own sons. Do you see the powerful weight of the argument? We, if God is a perfect father, then he must grieve if any of his children perish, even though they may perish righteously. Now, not only is there a philosophical logic in this train of argument, but this view also goes to the scriptures to gain some support there. The other views, which we have already presented, the sinless, the incapable, and the love of God theory, they do not major or appeal to the Bible for their justification. But this view does supposedly have some scriptures to support its justification. Now, if you have your Bibles tonight, I'd like for you to get them ready as we look at three or four passages of scripture to try to see that the advocates of this view then not only have a very weighty philosophical argument, wherein they reason that if God is the Father of all men, and all men are his children, if he is a judge, assigns justly one of his creatures to hell, then he himself must grieve and forever stand at the door or the gate of hell and mourn for his lost child. That's a powerful, weighty argument. But then they go further, and they say we have some scriptures whereby we can support our view that God is the Father of all men. Would you begin with me in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26? Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Here will be the first passage which the advocates of this view will present to us. Genesis 1 and verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, etc., etc. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him male and female. So here we have the origin of the human race, created in the image of God. Our advocates say, do you agree with that? And we say, well, certainly, that's what the Bible says. Then they say, all right, let's go a step further. Let us go now to Luke chapter 3 and verse 36, and let us see what Adam was called. What was Adam called as God created him? Luke chapter 3 and verse 36. Here we have the genealogy of the human race, and in Luke 3, verse 36, well, let's go down to verse 38, rather, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the what? What does your Bible say? Hmm? The son of God. Now, they would say, now, the scripture said in Genesis, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image and after his own likeness. 
And Adam was referred to as God's son. So they say, now see there, by a natural creation of God, Adam was a son of God. Now then, also, they would take us to Acts chapter 17 and verse 29 in your New Testament. Acts 17 and verse 29. There in Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, he states, For as much then as we are the offspring of God. How many offspring have you had? I've had four. I have produced and fathered four children. They are referred to as natural offspring. Here, Paul says of the human race, we are all the offspring of God. So if Adam was called a son of God, and Adam was God's offspring, then they would say then, see here, not only is Adam, but all of Adam's children referred to as the offspring or the children of God. Therefore, if God is the father of all men, and all men are his children, then God could never have any peace of mind if one of his children ultimately perished in eternal punishment. Then they go on. In Malachi chapter 2 and verse 10, the last book of the Old Testament canon of Scripture, the Jews make a statement in Malachi 2 and verse 10, in reply to the prophet of God, Malachi, they state this, Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God, what, created us? Now here, this is a reply to the Jews, to the prophet Malachi. And incidentally, this is a good principle of biblical observation and interpretation. You do not accept everything that is said in the Bible. Some of the statements in the Bible are recorded to be statements of Satan. For example, Satan quoted a verse in the Bible in the temptation of Christ, but he didn't quote it right. He also misquoted God's words to Eve. Just because something is written in the Bible, you do not take that and say that is true. It was true, Satan said it, but it is not necessarily true that God says it's a principle of truth. And this statement here, wherein the Jews are replying to the prophet Malachi with these words, Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Now that is a view which was held by mankind or a group of Jewish people toward their understanding of God as a creator. But they did associate in their understanding, that because God had created them, he was their father through their natural birth. Are you with me? Still here? Do do you not then see then why the Jews argued so strongly with Christ in John chapter 8? When they said, we are the children of Abraham, we have but one father, who? Even God. We'll examine that passage in great detail before we get out of this particular theory. But what did Jesus say to them? If God were your father, 
you do the works of Abraham. Remember that passage of Scripture? Here, the Jews felt that as long as they were the natural born offspring of God, then they automatically had the rights and the privileges to all of what God Almighty would bestow upon them as a father. Now, that's the same error which the modern liberal is making today when he affirms the fatherhood of God and the creaturehood, or rather the childhood, of all men. He assumes that as long as you and me are natural-born children of God, then we shall ultimately partake of all the promises which God has made to his people. Now then, there's one other passage, and if you want to turn there, we won't deal with it at length, but it's found in the 15th chapter of, of Luke, verses 11 through 32, and it was the passage of the prodigal son, the story of his conversion. And this passage is appealed to as to illustrate the universal fatherhood of God and that all men are but wayward sons of God. So then we have the creation of Adam. We have then the statement in the scripture that Adam was a son of God. We have a statement in the scripture that all men are the offspring of God. We have a scriptural reference which was held to as a truth by the Jewish people that God was their father because he had created them. And then we have a parable of a prodigal son portraying the conversion experience of a sinner wherein the son returns to the father's house. Now, all of these scriptures are appealed to by the advocates of this view. So then, it is incumbent upon us to give this a fair hearing. It is incumbent upon us to closely examine both the logic and the scriptural references to see if indeed this is the view which is to be adopted as the true answer to the question of what happens to an infant which dies in infancy. Now, we've had to take this whole message tonight to just lay down the view. Next week, the Lord willing, then, we'll come back and we'll begin to examine the logic of this view and see if this view is that which is taught in the Bible and also examine these very texts in detail to see if they do indeed teach that all men are the children of God and that all men will often be saved, thereby that includes infants. And, of course, the logic would simply be that if all men are openly going to be saved, and there's not going to be such a thing as eternal punishment of any creature in hell, then, of course, the destiny of all infants dying in infancy would be that of heaven. I, again, want to affirm for some who have come into our midst this evening that I am attempting to show from the Scriptures that all infants dying in infancy are saved, are redeemed, are regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, and will end up in eternal glory in heaven. But I am attempting to do this by staying within the framework of the Scriptures, for that is what I am governed by. This view which we are examining here is the most difficult one which we have examined thus far. 
For it has an inescapable logic which appeals to your heart as a parent. If you are here tonight and you are a parent, you can relate to your own child. And you can relate that no matter what happens to that child, no matter how wayward they become, no matter how much they have to be punished, if anything happened to them, it would also affect your own happiness. Now, can you not relate to that? Then if this view is true, that God is the Father of all mankind, then it is inescapably true He is a perfect Father, as we are imperfect fathers. And therefore, if any of His children perish, God must Himself be grieved throughout all eternity to come. So we have to deal with that and see if that premise is true. Then we also then have to deal with the Scriptures which they have presented to us. So the Lord willing, in the coming message, we will attempt to do somewhat of both. I will send us away with this understanding, though, this evening. This view, if you understand it somewhat, as has been presented tonight, destroys entirely the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the behalf of sinners. It absolutely renders unnecessary anything about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I believed this view, I'd stop preaching the gospel. I might be a liberal minister, but I would never preach the gospel. Now, you can go in church after church today, and you will find that this book is never referred to anymore. You say, is that really true, Brother Jim? Aren't you misrepresenting the case? No, you can find Reader's Digest referred to. You can find various other magazines and philosophical ideas referred to. But this book has been carefully placed away in some cabinet somewhere and is rarely ever referred to in the modern-day pulpit. Now, what is the cause of that? Because the work of the gospel is no longer necessary because man is viewed as already being in a state of favor with God as a father. So I don't have to tell you tonight if I believe this. I don't have to exhort you to repent and believe the gospel. Because all you have to do is to tell me as the Jews told Christ, we are not sinners, we have God. For our Father. He loves us. And if we do stray, he'll chasten us. But don't you dare call us a sinner. And Jesus would look at them and say, If ye were of your Father, you'd do the works of Abraham. He said, But you're not of your Father. And then he said who their Father was. How many of you know what the answer is? Ye are of your Father, the what? The devil. Now, that's the founder of the Christian faith who said that. I'm getting ahead of myself in next week's message. We must then close and leave it for that. But I want to emphasize before we leave, if we believe in this view, then it will be the death blow of preaching. It will be the death blow of missions. There's no need to get excited about reaching men and women with the gospel because all men are already reached and already within the family of God. Let's close in prayer.